As the pandemic has shown us, the bigger the lie, the greater the pool of experts and rent seekers. That's dependent on government funding, of course, to hold the line and spin tall tales. We live in a crazy world where members of our wealthy, educated elite profess they have no future because man is changing the climate and destruction is imminent. Our politicians can become popular by simply committing to distant and dangerous goals to save us from CO2 emissions. Now that's a colourless, odourless, invisible gas. Of course, genuine environmental hazards can be conveniently ignored. Today we talk to Dr Patrick Moore about his new book, Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom. We also talked to Blake Christian, CPA, about the economic impact of the trillions being dished out by the Biden administration on Green New Deal projects and so-called infrastructure spending. Dr. Patrick Moore is a co-founder of Greenpeace and served for nine years as president of Greenpeace Canada and seven years as a director of Greenpeace International. His new book, Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom, has been the number one bestseller in environmental science on Amazon. Patrick Moore, author of Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom, great to uh, see you. Thank you for joining us. Nice to be with you, mate. Now, look, we know there's not a climate emergency, but why do governments from local to state to federal, uh, big tech, and most of the media promote the lie that there is a climate emergency. First, because it scares people and makes them compliant. And that is why we're having so much trouble with this virus. It's, it's been instilled in us already by the fear of not only climate change, but the Great Barrier Reef is dying and the polar bears are going extinct and every other thing. And the common denominator in all these scare stories is that they are about things that are either invisible, like carbon dioxide, radiation, and whatever bad thing is supposed to be in GMO foods, which actually doesn't exist. And then there are things that are remote, like your Great Barrier Reef, like our polar bears here in Canada, where the average person doesn't go and see the whole Great Barrier Reef for themselves to see if they're telling the truth when they say that 93% of it is practically dead. Well, then, practically dead. Now, that's a pretty weaselly word, isn't it? Practically dead doesn't mean dead. And almost dead doesn't mean dead either. And nearly dead doesn't mean dead. And terminally ill doesn't mean dead. So they say these things to scare the public into doing what they want them to do, which is to send them money willingly uh, to the scientists, the activists, the media, and all their advertising and the politicians promising to save your grandchildren from a certain demise in an overheated world if you don't send money so and, or listen to my demands and my commands. And that is what it's all about. And it, it's, it's only because these things cannot be verified by the average person as being true or not that they get away with it because they know this formula. If you can't verify it, you can't contradict them. And they get away with it. Censorship is a really nice way of uh, stamping on the truth. Fake invisible catastrophes and threats of doom seems to have gotten around that because 
You're the number one bestseller right now on Amazon, one of the great censors of the pseudo-democratic world we live in. How did you achieve that? I mean, I thought Amazon would have hit you on the head instantly. Well, they are not as bad from a political point of view. And the other thing is, I'm not particularly political. People who come right out, uh, you know, championing Trump and championing uh, whoever else that they don't like, uh, that's a different matter because this, this is not so much a partisan issue, even though the left is largely involved in creating these things, that, that the scientists aren't necessarily left-wing. They are just taking advantage of the fact that you can scare people with invisible catastrophes. And so I, I don't think I, I, I cause those triggers to go off. The other thing is, I do have a legitimate history as an ecologist and environmentalist. I'm not just an activist. I am an ecologist and a longtime environmentalist. And I explain my issues in those terms. I'm not attacking particular politicians. That is, I don't think that makes much sense anyways. I'm, I'm dealing with issues. In fact, and I, I think the whole problem here has to do with the scare stories and the science behind them, rather than with the individuals or what political stripe they are. That's just my feeling, and I go by that feeling, and it seems to work. And I think a lot of people from a lot of different uh, walks of life are reading my book, and it is understandable. That's what one of the main things they say about it in the reviews on Amazon, uh, and, and, and it isn't about partisan politics so much. It's more about the truth versus the lie. In the book, you expose the lies behind many well-known environmental doomsday prophecies. Can you give us some examples? Well, Your Great Barrier Reef is one of the best examples. I'll give that as the first one of two here. Uh, in 2016, April thereof, stories came out saying that 93% of the Great Barrier Reef was nearly dead. They also used the word bleached to basically imply that it was dead or dying. Uh, there was a fair amount of weasel words. The headline actually in, in the uh, Australian Research Council's uh, group said that 7% had not been affected. So in other words, 93% had been affected, but affected was used there. And then the media somehow translated that into 93% of the reef is dead. They didn't say dead very often. They mostly said practically dead. But then a, a year later, they said it was terminal. And Forbes, I think it was, said that this was the final terminal stage, as if there were previous terminal stages to the final one. And, uh, of course, but even that doesn't mean it's actually dead yet. And then uh, in 2018, in the fall, a couple of magazines, Newsweek in particular, uh, put out a story saying that the Great Barrier Reef is definitely not dead and is recovering beautifully. I think Bloomberg did one story like that, too. But there were like two stories about the reef recovering and about 500 stories about the reef dead. And so that was one of the fake invisible catastrophes. And the other one is the polar bears at the opposite end of the Earth, at the North Pole, from where you are. And they say they're going extinct because the ice is melting. Well, the fact is, 
There was a treaty signed among all polar nations in 1973 because wildlife biologists told them that they were being overhunted, the polar bears were. And so all polar nations joined in a treaty then to end unrestricted hunting. It had become too easy to fly up there, hire an Inuit guide, and get a couple of polar bear rugs for in front of your fireplace. And so the country stopped that. And since then, the polar bear population has grown from approximately six to 8,000 to somewhere between 30 and 50,000 today. The polar bears are doing just fine. And one of the reasons might be the fact that the ice is melting a little bit more in the summer than it used to. It still covers the whole Arctic in the winter when the seals are out, sorry, when the bears are out on the ice hunting the seals. But in the summer, it opens the sea a bit more, and that lets the sun shine down and grow the plankton, which is the basis of the food chain for the whole Arctic. And the, and the fish eat that, and then the seals eat that, and the bears eat the seals. So it may well be that the slight melting of the Arctic ice in summertime has benefited the bears. It's not as if it's a choice between no ice or all ice. There's a happy medium somewhere where the sun can cause growth of the food chain and the bears can get lots of seals to eat. So those are two good examples where there is no catastrophe. The Great Barrier Reef is doing just fine and will continue to do so. And the upshot of the, of the reef story is that actually the most biodiverse reefs with the most coral species and the most reef fish species are in the warmest oceans in the world, which is north of you in what's known as the Coral Triangle, Indonesia, the Philippines, and the Solomon Islands. That's by far the highest biodiversity, way more than there is in the Great Barrier Reef, which is in fact in cooler water, especially during the cool season. In, in the Indonesian Ocean, there is no real cool season for the ocean, so it's warm year-round. And it actually is kind of a sanctuary for corals. If the world got warmer, those corals would spread out into other areas as they became warmer. So there's no, no threat of the coral reefs having any problem with a slight warming of this world, even a fair amount of warming would spread their, their, their area over a much larger area of the ocean. There are no coral reefs in Alaska or England because the oceans are too cold there. You say that activists, the, the media, politicians and scientists who are promoting these stories have a huge financial and or political interest in the subject. Can you talk more about these conflicts? Well, I wouldn't so much call them conflicts as I would taking advantage of the situation of creating so-called narratives about invisible and remote things. The word narrative should actually be confined to works of fiction. It is not a scientific word, just like the word consensus should be confined to politics and social situations where you're trying to make decisions among people, whereas in science, consensus has no place whatsoever and narrative has no place in science either. We have theories in science, not narratives. And so the theory that carbon dioxide is causing catastrophic global warming is false. And the theory that carbon dioxide has not been proven to be the cause of any warming of the Earth through any of the ages of the Earth is true. So this is what we have to sort out. 
If you look back at the history of temperature on this Earth and carbon dioxide levels, it was much warmer when CO2 was much lower than it is today. As a matter of fact, we have reversed a long-term 150 million year decline in carbon dioxide in the global atmosphere to the point where plants were starving for it during the last glaciation, only 20,000 years ago, it dropped to 180 parts per million, only 30 parts above the death of plants. And we are actually restoring a balance to the global carbon cycle. I've written papers on this. There's lots of videos of me explaining this. No one has actually tried to challenge me on my hypothesis that CO2 was too low for life and that we actually are not its destroyers, we are its salvation. We ha and it was inadvertent. The reason we're burning fossil fuels is to get energy, not to save the Earth from certain doom. But in fact, if CO2 had continued to decline at the rate it had been for the last 150 million years, it would not be that long in geological time until there wasn't enough of it to support life on this planet any longer. And it was a good thing we came along and have done what we're doing, re-greening the earth. And it's CSIRO, in fact, in Australia that pioneered this work, showing that our carbon dioxide emissions are causing a greening of the earth worldwide. NASA has just recently pointed out that the Sahara Desert has greened by an area the size of France and Germany combined over the last 20 years. So these are true facts, and they are being ignored by this cabal, this basically massive conflict of interests, as you call it, or convergence of interests among these key elites, the green activist movement, the media, the politicians promising they're going to save your kids and grandkids, and the scientists on serial government grants like the reef scientists, like, how are they going to save the reef by studying it anyways? They want a half a billion dollars to watch it die? Is that the idea? Or do they have some trick that they're going to use out there to bring it back to life again? Well, we don't need any of that because it's actually doing quite well without their interference. Thank you very much. It's amazing how much damage the word emergency can do. It's been used by almost... Um, Anybody, any government as a weapon by, say, government, uh, big tech, mainstream media, it eradicates discussion and you can hide the truth by whatever means available seems to be ramped up over the past few years. You know, just we have an emergency. So therefore, you can't talk about ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine. You can't talk about that because it's not part of the narrative, which you've said is not part of you know, the scientific discussion. Now, if they eradicate discussion or hide the truth by whatever means they have available, uh, and the trigger points being, I can think of, say, Donald Trump, COVID, and now a very weak government, do you think this is looking at all this scaremongering? Do you think this is compliance by fear? Yes, it is strictly based on fear, and they are using these made-up stories uh, you can't point over the other side of the bay or, or over the other side of the street and say, look what the CO2 is doing over there. That's the problem. They're saying it's making the earth too hot for life. They have no proof of that. They can't, you can't see that happening anywhere. 
But, you know, they blame forest fires on carbon dioxide. For Pete's sakes, carbon dioxide is what we put fires out with. That's what's in fire extinguishers. So that's a kind of silly idea. And the idea that there would be more forest fires just because it's warmer doesn't make any sense. The Canadian boreal forest halfway to the Arctic Circle catches on fire all the time. It's just that it's dry and tender in the summer. It, and that will burn even at low temperatures. So it's not the climate that is causing the fires. It's bad management of the landscape. And if people in Australia and here in Canada and the United States would only listen to the original people a little bit more about how you manage large forested and grassland landscapes by doing the burning in the spring when it's still moist and it's not so hot, and it's not so windy, and you, you, you burn off the fuel load, and then if a fire does start, it will be nowhere near as severe as if you let that fuel load build up year after year after year. And the First Peoples of Australia and the First Peoples of the Americas figured that out. Your guys had 60,000 years to figure it out. Over here, we only had 15,000. But the Europeans came and didn't learn that lesson very well, especially today when the greens have taken over, uh, the, the urban greens have taken over managing the countryside, which they don't know anything about. So it's time for a big change there to, to start working with landscapes with ecological principles and using environmental management instead of this hands-off, no roads. How can you get to put a fire out if there's no road to go in there with equipment? Mm. And they've got this so that they think roads are evil for some reason, when in fact they create access for people to recreate and to hunt and to put out forest fires. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it's amazing with the, um, I mean, again, back to that word emergency. Um, once you have that that word and the the full effect of it upon us uh, you're not allowed to talk about things that aren't uh, sanctioned by the government or big tech or the media or whatever who the big players are um, and so if you're getting out this message now that there's a climate emergency uh, called by Joe Biden and other Western governments are, are following suit uh, you can't get the, that message out because if you try to uh, you have you know, YouTube and you have uh, Facebook and Twitter and all those have become the, uh, the, the, uh, the arbiters on free speech. Uh, it's gone. So how do you get your message out? Because what you're saying makes sense, but you don't read well, about I'm that whole I'm, I'm getting my message out in my book, Mike, and it's, it's a message that is meant for all people. Mm. It's not, not meant to be a partisan message. It's meant to be a message about the scientific nature of this world. It's meant to tell people, like, for example, if they really want to reduce fossil fuel consumption, and there's nothing wrong with doing that if that's what people want to do, as long as there is a substitute for it to do the things we do. And that substitute is nuclear energy. And why the, the Western democracies have stalled completely on going further into nuclear energy, I don't understand. It's very, it's a very safe technology. Like in our country of Canada and down in the United States, no one has ever been injured by a nuclear accident, ever. In 65 years, there's over 100 nuclear power plants running every day between our two countries. 96 of them are in the United States. 
And nuclear energy could replace fossil fuels for electricity production for everything that is stationary. All buildings, all factories, electric motors that are running in all the factories, electric arc furnaces that use vast amounts of electricity to recycle steel, uh, cement manufacturing, all of that could be done with electricity from nuclear energy. All shipping could be done with nuclear energy. All railroads can be done with electrification of the tracks. When you think about shipping, that, that ship that got stuck in the Suez, that could have been run by nuclear energy. Because if you can run a submarine with nuclear missiles on it three months underwater with nuclear propulsion, you can certainly run cargo ships and oil tankers with nuclear propulsion. And that's only 2% of the world's CO2 emissions, but it all adds up. Mm. We, could re we could easily eliminate 50% of all the fossil fuel consumption, especially for electricity production, by mm. switching out from fossil fuel to nuclear. Mm. And if the green movement wants their wish, they could get a big part of it that way, but it's like they have a death wish. They want us to stop using fossil fuels and with nothing reasonable to replace them with. Wind and solar cannot do that job. And I know what Australia is doing with these huge battery systems. That will not do the job. You have to have reliable technology, and wind and solar are not reliable. They are a big crony capitalist scam. And a few people get mansions, and everybody else pays a lot more for less reliable power. How influential, then, are people such as Bill Gates and other tech billionaires on global climate change policy? I actually don't think Bill Gates is that influential. He, he doesn't really know much about it to start with. Like, he's just come out and said that we should stop eating meat uh, from cows. Um, okay, I tweeted, does Bill Gates know that cows can digest cellulose, which is straw and corn stover, you know, with all the big stock of what's left over from just getting, we just eat the ear of corn. The rest of it can be eaten by cows. They can turn that cellulose because they have four stomachs, one of which has bacteria with the enzyme cellulase in it, which is able to digest cellulose. So they're adding to the world's food supply greatly because they're digesting things that very few other species can eat. And what about the dairy industry? When they talk about beef, they never talk about milk and cheese and butter and cottage cheese and tzatziki, one of my favorites. Uh, they never talk about that. Do people really think we should just quit dairy altogether? I, I'm not going to. They can if they want to, and that's another aspect of this movement, is they think they can tell everybody else exactly what to do. And they have no right to do that in a free society. They can do whatever they want themselves as long as it doesn't hurt me or my friends or my family. The golden rule is actually where we should all be starting, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I don't think they want us telling them what they have to eat. So get off my case. Mm. Don't tell me what I have to eat. I'll eat what I feel like. And that, that's about what it comes down to for me. I, I really do think that we have to recognize that people have a brain in their head and are decisions in a manner in a free society. And if we want a dictatorship, if, if we want a communist government well no thanks i don't want that mm -hmm. thank you very much and in my book 
I don't deal with it in in partisan way. I I say there's people, uh, two kinds of people. There's people who want to control society, and then there's people who want to be free from society's control. And the, the, the back and forth between those two forces has been going on since the beginning of history. And we have to find a balance, of course, because society does have to have rules to protect people from each other. But it doesn't have to be a dictatorship or a communist regime where the individual has no choice whatsoever themselves. Mm. I don't see why anybody would choose that. Uh, and I, and I, I think I would resist anybody trying to dictate that to me. What important environmental problems are being ignored while everyone is chasing the cause of climate change? Well, I'm not being ignored. Uh, I've, I've done about 200 interviews in the last couple of months. Uh, so somebody's listening, uh, and I get a lot of positive feedback. And I really do believe that the message will eventually get through. Uh, but I, I cannot imagine that the pendulum will continue to swing in the de- direction that it has been swinging of late. It's, it's got to eventually uh, come to a stop and then start to move back towards the center again. Because if, 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 if indeed... We are going to be uh, told that it's going to be a you know world communist government. I don't think people are going to accept that, and and of course they shouldn't. I guess we'll see. I hope not. I hope truth hasn't been exterminated forever. I just can't see that being true. Surely the truth will out, and. And, and surely people will recognize that they have been lied to in so many directions. What next for Patrick Moore? Um, do we see you in a James Bond movie, maybe, or just uh, another book? I want to do a photo book of my own photograph that has nothing to do with politics, that is all about birds and boats and beaches and people in foreign places and culture and that sort of thing. So I, I've been an amateur photographer since I was six when I was given a, a brownie box camera by my father. And uh, I, I've enjoyed, I, I enjoy that a lot. It's sort of the other side of me. I understand photography and I think I do a pretty nice job of it. Uh, the other thing I want to do is there's these books called For Dummies. And I know nobody has written Nuclear Energy for Dummies. So I'm going to approach the publishers that own that brand name and see if they might be interested because I've made a lifelong study of nuclear subjects. I, I did receive the National Award for Nuclear Science and History from the Einstein Society in the United States. I received that in Albuquerque in 2009 for the recognition of my knowledge in the subject. And I could, believe me, go on for five hours explaining the miracle of nuclear energy, but uh, I'll spare you today. Well, we have in in Australia, we have this great aversion to um, nuclear propulsion. It's in fact, it's almost nuclear repulsion. And the um, we're building some submarines. Now, we don't get these submarines probably for another 35 years. So hopefully no one will want to do bad things to us in that time. But they're converting these nuclear submarines to diesel submarines. Um, just your, your thoughts on that before we wind this up. Oh, I'd go solar on that one. <laughs> yeah. At 100 metres depth, there's, there's still some sunlight down there. 
uh, that's just preposterous. Did you know, the, one of my funniest stories is that Australia, of course, is supplying the world with uranium, uh, pretending it's not heroin, uh, and uh, that you won't have anything to do with nuclear energy yourself, which you have the fuel for. And there's this little country named Slovakia in Europe, which was part of Yugoslavia at one point. Uh, they get two-thirds of their electricity from nuclear energy, and they have banned uranium mining in Slovakia. Such is the logic of politics in the world today. That's so nuts. That's if, really nuts, isn't it? If only Slovakia would allow themselves to mine their own uranium, and if only Australia would allow itself to make electricity with its own uranium, uh, the world would be a more logical place. I assure you. Now, the book, Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom, available from uh, Amazon, online, and all good and bad bookstores, I would imagine, Patrick? Yes, no, it's only on, on Amazon. I'm self-published. Uh, you'll see the little man on, on there saying, you will perish in flames. <laughs> and that is actually what they're telling us. Mm. But, you know, that's a line from Ghostbusters. If, if they haven't ever seen the original Ghostbusters, do watch it, because it is one of the iconic films of all time. But in it, there's a, a scene where um, Rick Moranis approaches a horse and buggy in Central Park and screams up at the driver, you will perish in flames, and then runs off in fit. Uh, and it's one of the funniest lines, because it really does describe the climate emergency perfectly. Patrick Moore, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure, Mike. I'll come back anytime you'd like. Joe Biden unveiled his $2 trillion infrastructure plan, a.k.a. the Great Corporate Tax Hike, just over a week ago. Blake Christian from Holthouse, Carlin and Van Trite in California and Utah is one of America's top tax CPAs. Blake, great to catch up with you once again. Always good to see you, Mike. Okay, your thoughts on the uh, Joe Biden's infrastructure quote fiasco. I, I'm a big fan of infrastructure. I'd rather I'd rather buy things with our taxpayer dollars than um, than put it to some you know nebulous program. So uh, I like buying hard assets. So I support him uh, on on part of it. But uh, there's a you know as we expected, there's a whole lot of fluff in there, and there's there's other programs and climate change things that, um, you know, aren't really the core infrastructure. And uh, I didn't count, I couldn't keep track of all of them, but, you know, I I think he and others used union, you know, at least 25 times during the the, the speech. And, um, you know, and, you know, unions have their place, but they also drive up the cost of construction quite a bit. And so to, to only use union labor, which seems to be his focus, um, is going to drive the costs up. So, I, I mean, I think, I think you use any and all means to do quality work, but also keep the costs under control. So you don't have to use 100% union labor. How does it feel going from a free market to a socialist economy? <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, it's, it's uh, you know, we, we kind of thought that it may happen with some of the candidates. Uh, maybe we thought it would be a little bit less with Biden, but he's um, he's certainly uh, singing from the 
socialist hymn book here, I think. Uh, what's the consensus of uh, GDP growth for uh, 2021 and 2022? Well, there, there's actually two two figures. You know, one one is the uh, uh, the nominal, and the other is the real uh, number. And so the the nominal includes inflation factor. So there's projected about two percent inflation, which I think is is uh, woefully lower than it will be uh, based on everything else that's happening over here. But um, they're talking about 6.3% in 2021. And then I believe it goes to 4.9. Now, those are those are the grossed up numbers because there's 2% inflation in there. Uh, roughly, on a real basis, it's 4.6 and 2.9. Now that that's the the uh, congressional budget office numbers, um, which you know you usually are, you know, reasonably accurate. We talked uh, many times about uh, impending inflation, which will happen. Uh, how do you think that inflationary impact will impact workers, uh, home buyers, business owners, retirees, for example? Yeah, you know, I mean, you have you know certain faction that is applauding. A $15 minimum wage, and as I've said before, you know, $15 is probably too low in big metropolitan areas like New York City and Los Angeles, but uh, is is way over the top in you know places like Des Moines, Iowa, and so um, I you know I, I think if if they do drive it up to that level. You know, you can't help but drive up, uh, you know, consumer prices. And so that, you know, those people that are getting that raise may see it eaten up real quickly uh, by the cost of uh, of their necessities that they're buying, including rent. So um, anyway, it's, you know, I, I just think it's an unsustainable game to, you know, drive those up and just pick a magic number like $15. It's pretty interesting with the uh, Biden administration uh, certainly making life interesting, especially if you're a CPA or you're in business. Uh, And even with climate change being the climate emergency, which is pure bunkum to say the least, uh, AOC apparently came out to say that the reason why the influx of immigrants is because of climate change. Yeah, I, I I don't know. Uh, they you know the pictures that I've seen of the uh, the border accommodations uh, that it, you know does looks like you'd be living in a greenhouse. It you know people packed on eat on top of each other. It doesn't look real uh, real comfortable. So um, I, I don't know how long they'll. Uh, use that as an excuse for them coming north. Looking at the immigration, it's going to put some real stress on uh, your social security system and it's probably heading towards big problems, if not already. How bad is it and what are the potential fixes? Well, yeah, the, you know, it's it's project, projected to run out of, of kind of the reserve funds in the mid-2030s, uh, say 2035, and uh, while tax collections, uh, Social Security tax collections will uh, cover about 70 to 75 percent, there's going to be you know, at least a 25 percent shortfall uh, from 2035 roughly on. And so that's going to either be 
a, a drop of 25% in benefits or you're going to have to drive up the uh, tax collections on the Social Security system uh, to compensate for that. So it's it's uh, not you know not looking real good for the you know the next you know next fifteen years uh, how that how that's going to pan out. One wonders though. Um, I mean, this is just going four years from now, basically. Um, if there's a change of, of administration, and just say, for example, uh, Republicans get back in, whether it's Donald Trump or um, or DeSantis or anybody, I mean, it's, they, they're going to have a, a different view and a different uh, approach to what's being done now. These upheavals, before Biden, we had Trump and we had a lot of um, uh, business encouragement. You have under Biden, it's more like, well, you know, we're going to just drop back a bit, look after the poor, which is nothing wrong with that, but you've got to make sure you can do it without hurting what makes the, the economy tick over. So you, you get into this sort of cocoon almost, you know, being bashed around the head with cotton wool earbuds or something, but you're still being bashed around the head. And then you change it, say, back to the Republicans. Can business sustain, because you've got to plan way ahead, can business sustain, though, the from one administration with one attitude to another one with this draconian attitude to, say, maybe a more positive one with the Republicans? What happens to business? How do you plan yeah, it's, you know, as you, as you say, um, you know, if you want, I think it was Ronald Reagan that said, if you if you want less of something, then tax it. And uh, and so if if you want less domestic manufacturing, then, you know, you drive up corporate taxes. And you know, we already have seen, you know, in the first 60 days of the new administration, you've seen um you know, one or two of the automakers, you know, announce that they're going to move um, some of their production, I think, back to Mexico. Uh, whereas when you saw Trump come in, as soon as he put in the 2017 Tax Act, you saw a bunch of foreign manufacturing uh, uh, from from U.S. companies move back into the U.S. So, um you know, it takes a little while on on some of this stuff because you're talking about whole factories and things. But uh, you know, sometimes it's just firing up an old one. So um, you're 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 going to see a lot of change as you know these laws come out. And and what I will say is, you know, I, I I'm bashing the program a little bit here, but I I, I have to say from a selfish standpoint. Uh, you know, the CPA industry will thrive as a result of uh, jacking up the taxes and just making the, the tax laws even more complex than they are. So we'll, we're going to be plenty, plenty busy for the next four years. So, Blake, if somebody wants to find out more about HCPT.com or Blake Christian CPA, how do they do that? Uh, easiest way is just Google HCBT or uh, Blake Christian CPA. And uh, all of our contact information will come up. Blake Christian, always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that's it for Asia Pacific Today. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Mike Ryan.